Today I'll be reading Lucifer's Hammer by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. Prologue. Before the sun burned, before the planets formed, there were chaos and comets. And the comets. Not comet. Chaos was a local thickening and an interstellar medium. Its mass was great enough to attract itself, to hold itself, and to thickened further. Eddies formed. Particles of dust and frozen gas drifted together, and touched, and clung. Flakes formed, and then loose snowballs of frozen gas. Over the ages, a whirlpool of patterns developed. A fifth of the light year across, the center contracted further. Local eddies, whirling frantically near the center of the storms, collapsed and formed planets. It formed as a cloud of snow, far from the whirlpool's axis. Isis joined the swarm, but slowly, slowly, a few molecules at a time, methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, and sometimes denser objects struck it and embedded themselves, so that it held rocks and iron. Now it was a single stable mass. Other ices formed, chemicals that could only be stable in the interstellar cold. It was four miles across when the disaster came. The end was sudden. In no more than 50 years, in the wink of an eye in its lifetime, the whirlpool center collapsed, and a new sun burned fierce, fearfully bright. Myriads of comets flashed to vapor in that hellish flame. Planets lost their atmospheres. A great wind of light pressure stripped all the loose gas and dust from the inner system and hurled it at the stars. It hardly noticed. It was 200 times as far from the sun as the newly pl formed planet Neptune. The new sun was no more than an uncommonly bright star, gradually dimly, dimming now. Down in the maelstrom, there was frantic activity. Gases boiled out of the rocks of the inner systems. Complex chemicals developed in the seas and in the third planet. Endless hurricanes boiled across within the gas giant's worlds. The inner worlds would never no calm. The only real calm was at the edge of the interstellar space, in the halo, where millions of thinly spread comets, such as the one far from its nearest brother, as Earth is from Mars, cruise forever through the cold black vacuum. Here its endless quiet sleep could last for billions of years, but not forever. Nothing lasts forever. Chapter 1. The Anvil. Against boredom, even the gods themselves struggle in vain. Nietzsche. January, the portent. The bay trees in our country are all withered, and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloodily on the earth, and lean looks looked prophets whisper fearful change. These signs forerun the death of all kings. William Shakespeare. The blue Mercedes turned into the big circular drive of the Beverly Hills mansion at precisely five after six. Julia Sutter was understandably startled. Good God, George, it's Tim. And dead on time. George Sutter joined her at the window. That was Tim's car, yep. He grunted and turned back to the bar. His wife's parties were always important events. So why, after weeks of careful engineering and orchestration, was she terrified that no one would show up? The psychosis was so common, there ought to be a name for it. Tim Hamner thought, and on time.
That was strange. Tim's money was third generation, old money, by Los Angeles standards, and Tim had a lot of it. He only came to parties when he wanted to. The Sutter's architect had been in love with concrete. There were square walls of square angles for the house, and softly curving freeform pools in the gardens outside. Not unusual for Beverly Hills, but startling to Easterners. To the right was a traditional Monterey villa of white stucco and red tile roofs. To the left, a Norman chateau magically transplanted to California. The Sutter Place was set well back from the street so that it seemed divorced from all the tall palms of the city fathers and deceased for this part of Beverly Hills. A great loop of drive ran up to the house itself. On the porch stood eight parking attendants, agile young men in red jackets. Hamner left the motor running and got out of the car. The key left, reminder screamed at him. Ordinarily, Tim would have snarled a powerful curse upon Ralph Nader's hemorrhoids, but tonight he never noticed. His eyes were dreamy. His hand patted his coat pocket, then stole inside. The parking attendants hesitated. People didn't usually tip until they were leaving. Hamner kept walking, dreamy-eyed, and the attendant drove away. Hamner glanced back at the red-coated young man, wondering if one or another might be interested in astronomy. They're almost always from UCLA or Loyola University. Could be reluctantly, he decided against it and went inside his hands straying from time to time to feel the telegram crackle under his fingers. The big double doors opened onto an enormous area that extended right through the house. Large arches, rimmed by red brick, separated the entry from the living areas, a mere suggestion of walls between rooms. The floor was continuous throughout. Brown tile laid the bright mosaic patterns. Of the 200 and more guests expected, fewer than a dozen were clustered near the bar. Their talks was bright and cheery, louder than necessary. They looked isolated in all that empty space, all that expanse of tables with candles and patterned tablecloths. There were nearly as many ununiformed attendants as guests. Hamner noticed none of this. He was, he had grown up with it. Julia Sutter broke from the tiny group of guests and hurried to meet him. There was a tight look around her eyes. Her face had been lifted and was younger than her hands. She made a kissing motion a fraction of an inch from Tim's cheek and said, Timmy, glad to see you. Then she noticed his radiant smile. She drew back a little and her eyes narrowed. The note of mock concern in her voice covered real worry. My God, Timmy, what have you been smoking? Tim Hamner was, a, was tall and bony, with just a touch of punch uh, to break the smooth lines. His long face was built for melancholy. His mother's family had owned a highly successful cemetery mortuary, and it showed. Tonight, though, his face was cracked wide apart with a blazing smile, and there was a strange light in his eyes, he said. The Hamner Brown Comet. Oh, Julius started. What? That didn't make much sense. You don't smoke a comet. She tried to puzzle it out with her eyes, roved her husband. He was having a second drink already? To the door when uh, were the others coming. The invitations had been explicit. The important guests were coming early, weren't they? He couldn't stay late, and 
She heard the low purr of a big car outside, and through the narrow windows framing the door, saw half a dozen people spoiling out of the dark, spilling out of a dark limousine. Tim would have to take care of himself. She patted his arm and said, That's nice, Timmy. Excuse me, please. A hasty, intimate smile, and she was gone. If it bothered Hammer, it didn't show. He ambled towards the bar. Behind him, Julia went and welcomed her most important guest, Senator Jellison, with his entourage. He always brought everyone, administrative assistants, as well as the family. Tim Hamner's smile was blazing when he reached the bar. Good evening, Mr. Hamner. Good it is. Tonight, I'm walking on pink clouds. Congratulate me, Rodrigo. They're going to name a comet after me. Michael Rodriguez, laying out glasses behind the bar, missed a beat. A comet? Right, Hamner Brown Comet. It's coming, Rodrigo. You can see it. Oh, around June, give or take a few months. Hamner took out a telegram and opened it with a snap. We will not see it from Los Angeles, Rodriguez laughed. What may I serve you tonight? Scotch rocks. You could see it. It could be as big as Haley's Comet. Hamner took the drink and looked about. There was a group around George Sutter. The knot of people drew Tim like a magnet. He clutched the telegram in one hand and his drink in the other, as Julia brought the new guest over and introduced them. Senator Arthur Clay Jellison was built something like a brick, muscular rather than overweight. He was bulky, jovial, and blessed with thick white hair. He was photogenic as hell, and half the people in the country would have recognized him. His voice sounded exactly as it did on TV, resonant, enveloping, so that everything he said took on a mysterious importance. Maureen Jellison, the senator's daughter, had long, dark red hair and pale, clear skin, and a beauty that would have made Tim Hamner shy on any other night. But when Julia Sutter turned to him and finally said, What's that about a Hamner Brown comment? Tim waved the telegram. Kit Peak Observatory has confirmed my sighting. It's a real comment. It's my comment. They're naming it after me. Maureen Jellison's eyebrows went up slightly. George Sutter drained his glass before asking the obvious question. Who's Brown? Hamner shrugged. His untaste, untasted drink slopped a little onto the carpet, and Julia frowned. Nobody's ever heard of him, Tim said. But the International Astronomical, Astronomical Union says it was a simultaneous sighting. So what you own, you own is half a comet, said George Sutter. Tim laughed quite genuinely. The day you own half a comet, George, I'll buy all those bonds and keep trying. You keep trying to sell me, and buy your drinks all night. He downed his scotch on the rocks in two swallows. When he looked up, he lost his audience. George was headed back to the bar. Julia had Senator Jellison's arm and was staring him towards new arrivals. The senator's administrative assistants followed her in her wake. Half a comet is quite a lot, Maureen said. Tim Hamner turned to find her still there. Tell me, how do you see anything through the smog? She sounded interested. She looked interested. And she could have gone with her father. The scotch was warm trace in his throat and stomach. Tim began telling her about this mountain observatory, not too many miles past Mount Wilson, but far enough into the Angels Mountains that the lights from Pasadena didn't ruin the seeing. He kept food supplies there and assistance, and he'd spent months of nights watching the sky, tracking down asteroids and other outer moons. 
letting his eye and brain learn the territory, and forever watching for the dot of light that shouldn't be there, the anomaly that could. Maureen Jellison had a familiar gaze look in her eyes. He asked, Hey, am I boring you? She was insistently apologetic. No, I'm sorry. I was just in a stray thought. I know I sometimes get carried away. She smiled and shook her head. A wealth of deep red hair rippled and danced. No, really. Dad's on the finance subcommittee for science and astronomics. Uh, he loves pure science, and I caught the bug from him. I was just... You're a man who knows what he wants, and you found it. Not many can say that. She was suddenly very serious. Tim laughed, embarrassed. He was only just getting used to the fact. Uh, what can I do for an encore? Yes, exactly. What do you do when you've walked on the moon and they cancel your space program? Why, I don't know. I've heard they sometimes have troubles. Don't worry about it, Maureen said. You're on the moon now. Enjoy it.